Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Well, good morning, church. We're continuing in our study through the book of Acts this morning, getting back to basics, uh, looking at the testimony of the early church's new devotion to Jesus. So, we are going to cover a full chapter of the book of Acts this morning. It's an ambitious undertaking, so we're going to get right into the text. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and read along with me what Luke has recorded in Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, "'Look at us!' And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, "'Men of Israel!' Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, 
In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our passage this morning can be divided into three sections, into the miracle, the Messiah, and the message. The passage opens with a miraculous account, and this miraculous account provides an occasion, an opportunity for the Apostle Peter to stand up in that setting and preach a message, preach a sermon, the second sermon recorded in the early church in the book of Acts, and that sermon is about the Messiah, and after Peter preaches about the Messiah, he delivers the gospel message. So we can view this passage as being composed of the miracle, the Messiah, and the message. And so first, I want to call our attention to the miracle that the passage opens with, beginning with verse 1. We read that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so what Luke does right here at the beginning is establish a setting. He sets the scene for the whole account that's going to unfold. Uh, it's the hour of prayer. That's approximately 3 p.m. our time. This was probably the last of three daily prayer times for the Jewish people. And notice the setting. Notice that they're at the temple in Jerusalem. And so, all the people that are gathering, that are present to witness this miracle, are devout Jews. They're people who um, are very religious. They're good church-going people. They've all come to the temple for the hour of prayer. And so, we have a setting of the scene. And next, Luke tells us about the subject that's at the center of this miraculous account. Verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried. Here's a man who was disabled, who had to be carried to the temple, and his condition persisted from the time that he was born. He was born disabled. And from the time that he was born until the time of this account, he had to be carried everywhere that he went. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So we have this subject, this man who is disabled and whose life in every respect is dependent upon the goodwill and the assistance and the charity of those around him. From the time he was born, he had to be carried from this point to that point. And as a man f being fully grown, he was totally dependent upon the help of those around him just to be carried to the temple just to the gate of the temple, not even necessarily inside the temple, on a daily basis so that he could beg for money. And so on a good day, this man was carried to the temple and he was laid at the gate. And on a good day, he would beg as good religious people went into the temple and maybe took notice of him and maybe provided for him a piece of silver or a piece of gold so that he could survive another day. His conditions were bleak and his his uh, dependence is pronounced. So we have this setting and we have this subject, but then we have this encounter between this disabled man and, and Peter and John. Verse 3 tells us, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. He asked them for, for, for some assistance. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now clearly, 
This man saw them going into the temple. He asked to receive alms. He had already had their attention, but they ask him, they say to him this, this thing. They say, look at us. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody, a really important conversation, and you're about to communicate the most important, most crucial point in that conversation? You knew everything in the conversation was going to turn on what you were about to communicate? Have you ever had a conversation like that? And what do you say before you make that point? You say, you say look at me. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm about to say, Right? And so here in this encounter, Peter says to this man, look at us, what we're about to tell you, what, we're, what you're about to receive from us is of the utmost importance. Look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting to receive? Money, some silver, some gold. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What does Peter give to him? He gives to him the hope that is only found in the name of Jesus and that is found nowhere else. I'd like to think about this encounter for just a moment. Peter and John, as Luke has recorded, have been walking with Jesus. They were with Jesus through his death and burial and in resurrection They saw that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus commissioned them as his emissaries, as his apostles, his messengers to carry the gospel message uh, to all the people. And so there's a very real sense in which Peter and John had a very important mission that they had been given by Jesus himself before he ascended into heaven to be seated on the heavenly throne. You could think that in some sense, Uh, They were important guys. Peter and John had a very important mission, right? They received it directly from Jesus. Yet, as they're going about their business, as they themselves are going up into the temple, it could have been very easy for them to just pass right by this lame man who was begging for support as they entered the temple. It would have been very easy for them maybe to not notice him, to be focused on what their mission was, to be focused on going into the temple Uh, to pray. But what we see is these two men, while on mission, stop to minister to, to help this man whose life was utterly dependent on every passerby. And they don't give to him the thing that he asks of them. Rather, they give him something of supremely higher value. They give to him the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, Peter commands that man to rise up and walk. How often, church, do we go about our business, going to work, coming from work, in our leisure time, uh, doing our thing, going about our business, and how often do we cross paths with people that are in need or maybe could use an encouraging word or a prayer or maybe even hear the name of Jesus How often do we encounter people like that and keep walking? Perhaps we don't stop and take the risk because we're too focused on ourselves and we're not sufficiently focused on the one that we represent. But here, Peter and John are supremely focused on the one that they represent, and it's that awareness of their mission and the one that they represent and what he has given them to communicate that compels them to stop and to care for this man who is in need. 
So we have this encounter. They say, look at us, and they, they give to him the name of Jesus. And then Luke tells us in verse 7, very simply, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Right away, without delay, the man is healed in the name of Jesus. Now, this is a, a radical, like, reality-altering moment. It, it is a miracle. People don't see this thing uh, every single day. Luke spends one verse describing the miracle. Because of the miracle's significance, he spends lots of verses talking about what that miracle means or what it points to. And so, what follows from that miracle first is a response from the man and a response from all those religious people who had gathered together in the temple to pray at that hour of prayer. Verse 8, and leaping up, the man stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Here's a man from birth who had been lame, who had to be carried who had to be carried to the temple. Who knows if he had ever been carried in to the temple. But immediately he leaps up, he stands, he begins to walk, and then he enters into the temple along with Peter and John. He's just walking and leaping and praising God. He's moved. And notice that he gives glory to God. He knows that he's been healed in the name of Jesus, and that healing is a gift from God, that Jesus is a gift from God. He's praising God. But what about all the people, all the bystanders who are looking on? And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. People are shocked. They're moved. They're riveted. They're, it's not just that they're filled with wonder. It's not just that they're filled with amazement. They're filled with both, with both wonder and amazement. They're overwhelmed at what they're seeing unfolding in front of them. So we have a miracle, and we have a response. And next, we see that Peter speaks to the people on the heels of this miracle. Verse 11, and while the lame man, while the now healed man clung to Peter and John, he's still clinging to them. He's still holding on to them. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This was a certain area of the temple. So all these people that are watching this thing unfold, they're amazed, and they run over, they gather around them. And verse 12, when Peter saw it, when he saw all the people run over and gather around, he addressed the people. And so now, the miracle has provided an occasion for Peter to preach the name of Jesus. And after he preaches the name of Jesus, he will communicate the gospel that is in the name of Jesus. And so, he addresses the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you marvel at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? I think that it's like our human tendency. If we were to see something this miraculous occur in our midst, we'd look at the one who commanded the person to stand up and walk, and we'd think like, man, you have your spiritual walk dialed right in. I mean, if you can say to this guy, get up and walk, you know, in the name of Jesus, there's something special about you, right? I mean, that's what I would probably naturally think. But what does Peter say? He says to all of them, don't stare at us. Don't look at me. Don't look at, at John. 
uh, as though it's by our power or by our piety, our observance, our commitment that we've made him walk. It's not about us. Immediately, Peter uses this opportunity to redirect their attention away from himself and to the one who deserves all of our attention. He redirects the people away from he and John and directly to Jesus. Peter saw Jesus perform the same miracle when he raised up Jairus' daughter by the hand in, in Luke chapter 8. And, and Peter knows that the purpose of this miracle is a demonstration of Jesus' own power and authority. It's, it's accomplished. It's rooted in Jesus' own power and authority, which had been delegated to him as a messenger. One commentator said that the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. The miracle testifies to the fact that Jesus is not dead, but that He's alive. And all these people have gone in the temple to pray, and all these people no doubt have heard about Jesus, but probably figured that He was dead and that He was buried. Well, if you're dead and you're buried, no one can call on your name for you to, to supply your power for somebody to be, who was lame from birth to be healed in an instant, right? And so this miracle testifies to, to the, 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 the reality of Jesus and the power that's only found in His name. And so what Peter's going to do now is he's going to use this opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus, to preach, to proclaim, to declare the name of Jesus to all these pious, observant Jews who have gathered for the hour of prayer in the temple. They're in the temple to pray, to seek God. And now Peter is going to declare to them the very name of God, the name which they had previously rejected and handed over. And simultaneously, as Peter addresses the people, he's going to accomplish two things. He's going to condemn the people for their sinful rejection of Jesus, their Messiah. And he's going to also exalt, lift up the name of Jesus and apply to his name at least three very potent titles which help unpack his identity, not just as the Messiah, but as the Son of God and as God who is also the Son. And so first, Peter says to them in verse 13 that Jesus is God's servant. That's the first title applied to Jesus. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, Peter's a Jewish man speaking to Jewish people, and they thought of their God as the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of, of the Jewish faith. The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, His servant Jesus, His servant Jesus, God's servant Jesus. Peter's drawing a connection between Yahweh and Jesus, between the Father and between the Son, whom you all delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Our God gave you this servant, his servant Jesus, and you denied him and you handed him over. That's a serious allegation. If you're an observant, pious Jew at the time and you're in the temple to seek God and to pray to him, and a man stands up and says that you have denied and rejected the one that God sent to you, you start to listen especially after you have seen such a miraculous deed performed in the name of that Messiah, in the name of that Jesus. So first, Jesus is God's servant, God's servant who was sent 
according to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 through 53, to suffer for our sake, to carry our iniquity, to carry our sorrows. So Jesus is lifted up by Peter as God's servant, but next Jesus is lifted up by Peter as the holy and righteous one, as the promised Messiah, as the one who is without stain, sin, or any kind of blemish. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You sinful people, you wicked people, you people whose lives are characterized by sin, you think you're pious coming to the temple to pray, but let me tell you who you really are. You're the ones that in your sin and in your ignorance and in your arrogance, you're the ones that denied the one who was the only one who ever lived without sin, the holy and righteous one. And as you denied the holy and righteous one, the one who lived without sin, instead, in exchange, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So, Peter is building his case for Christ, and he is also building his case against their sin. As my late grandmother would say, with each step, it gets worser and worser for them. So, Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. But Peter brings it home with this very powerful and potent title. Jesus is also the author of life, the author of life, the architect of life, verse 15, and you all killed the author of life. Think about that statement for a second, to kill the author of life, to take life from the one who authored it, who created it, who designed it. The one who actually designed and gave you life took on human form, and you took that very life away from him. Let me ask you a question. How many of us in here have the power to author life? Right, no hand should go up. Who alone has the power to author life? God. You killed the author of life. This Jesus is not just God's servant that he sent that was promised. He is not just the holy and righteous one, the one that lived a perfect and spotless and blameless and sinless life. He is also the author of life itself. He is God from God. He is God in the flesh. And you killed him, but God raised him whom God raised from the dead. God raised him, Peter says. John's standing next to him, and he says, we are witnesses to this. We are, we are eyewitnesses. We have seen his perfect life. We have seen his powerful ministry. We have seen his death, his burial, and we have seen, we have witnessed personally his resurrection. To this, we are witnesses. Jesus, God's servant. Jesus, the holy and righteous one. Jesus, the author of life. And Peter continues and says this very important thing to the people to explain the miracle. This is what, this is the truth that that miracle is pointing, tr pointing to. This is the greater reality or idea that that miracle, that sign, that wonder is, is, is presenting. Verse 16, and His name, church, this passage is all about the name of Jesus. This sermon by Peter is all about the name of Jesus and His name by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Everybody recognized this man. Everybody knew him. Everybody was familiar with him. And everybody assumed that his lot in life was simply to be lame until the day that he died. And so God uses what is broken and familiar to demonstrate the reality and the wonder of his power and the truth of the gospel and, 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 and the identity of his son Jesus. By faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So there's two ideas going on here with faith. First, Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the one that we put our trust and our belief in. Our faith clings to Him. But Jesus is also the source of our faith. Our faith comes as a gift through and on the basis of Him. Jesus is the object of our faith, and Jesus is also the source of our faith. And so, Peter invests the first half of his sermon in developing a case for Christ. He lifts up the name of Jesus and says that it's on the basis of this name that this man who you all recognize was, was healed. And so, there's this powerful explanation, and there's also this ascription of guilt. You guys handed him over. You guys denied him. You guys rejected him. You killed him, the very author of life. So next, Peter's going to transition to the gospel itself, starting in verse 17. And he's going to begin by finally declaring their guilt in terms of the blood of, Jesus's hand, blood of Jesus being on their hands. So he starts with the guilt of the men. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. We're tempted to read this in our language and think that uh, ignorance implies that they didn't really know what they were doing, and so they're kind of, in some sense, off the hook. But that's not what Peter is saying. Peter's referring to an Old Testament distinction between sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. There are some sins where you're not fully aware of the magnitude of the sin and what you're doing, and you're in some sense blinded to it, but not being fully aware of the reality and magnitude of the sin doesn't get you off the hook. You're still on the hook for that sin. Does that make sense? So he says, you all acted in, sins of, in a sin of ignorance, as also did your rulers. So they have all been thoroughly condemned for their wickedness and for their sin. And who are they? They're all church-going people. They're all believing people. They're all people that are going to the temple, doing their duty, paying their tithe, right? Going about their business, thinking everything is fine. We're good with God. God's good with us. And here Peter says, no, no, no. You, you don't even know how, how you stand in relation to God. You stand separated from God, and you stand condemned under Him because of what you did with the one whom He sent to you. Not just His servant, not just the one who, unlike you, is holy and righteous, but the one who is the very author of life, the one who gave you the breath that you're breathing in this very moment. And in conclusion, you acted in sin of ignorance. But bad news is followed by good news. Verse 18, but, but introduces good news. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. In other words, it was according to God's plan that the holy and righteous one, that the author of life, that, that the servant would become a suffering servant. It was necessary that that servant suffer. It was necessary that life be taken from the author of life, that the author of life experience death so that through his death he could take the sting of death away from those of us who are not holy and righteous. This was always God's plan. It was foretold by the prophets that his Christ would suffer and that he would die. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 so there's a suffering servant that was always planned. And on the basis of the work of this suffering servant, on the basis of his life and his 
work and what He has done, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the fact that He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and on the, fa- on the basis of the fact that He's coming back again, Peter calls all these people who are listening to this gospel sermon to respond. And what is his call for them to respond? What does he say? In verse 19, he says, therefore repent. On the basis of everything I've said to you, on the basis of what you have done and your guilt before God, and on the basis of who Jesus is, on the basis of the work that he has done, therefore repent. Turn back. Turn back. Turn back back towards the one that you turned away from. Turn back to, turn to the name of Jesus. It's a very simple message. Repent, turn. Look to Him. Put your faith in Him. Receive faith from Him. And Peter immediately moves from this call to respond to Jesus, this call to respond from the state of sinfulness to the promises that are communicated in the gospel. This is the second gospel message that's recorded in the history of the early church. And so, what Peter is communicating is, for those first believers, the essence of the gospel. In his first sermon, he talked about the, the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and how those were all necessary conditions for the possibility of God's good news, of God's gospel. And here he's talking about Jesus's identity and the reality of sin and what follows from the good news from the gospel itself. What is the gospel? That's a question that is asked and answered many different ways in our culture and cultures around the world today. People have many different ideas about the gospel. There are many different gospels, but there's one true gospel, and it's the gospel that Peter has preached uh, at Pentecost and that he preaches and reiterates again at the occasion of this miracle. Repent and turn. Repent and turn because of the suffering servant. Repent and turn first that your sins would be wiped out. Second, that you would experience spiritual refreshing. And third, because of the promise of the Lord's return. So there are three gospel promises that Peter communicates in this message. And the first one is that sins can be forgiven. He just spent the first half of his sermon declaring their guilt, declaring their sin. And what greater sin could one commit than killing the author of life? If I was standing there and I were convicted by his words, I would think there's no way out from under that one. There's there's no number of times that I can go to church or no amount of offering that I can put in the plate. There's There's no series of religious duties that I can carry out that will make up for killing the author of life. That's the nail in my coffin, spiritually speaking. But Peter says, on the basis of who Jesus is, by trusting in His name, just repent, turn back, turn to Him. And as you repent, as you turn to Him, first, your sins may be blotted out. We live in an age of technological advancement where we have things like laser printers, which etch, you know, text and, and graphics directly into the paper. It's, it's, it's indelible. It's, it's permanently etched into paper. We have ink that has acid in it that, that, that permanently etches, that burns in what's written on the paper uh, by the ink into the paper. But this was a time when uh, scribes would record things on, on papyrus with ink that had to, to set and dry. 
It, it, it wasn't acidic. Their, their ink wasn't that, that, uh, that advanced, and so it was easy for someone just to like wet a rag and just wipe the text right off of a page. And so there's this image right here being communicated of lives with sins recorded all over them that Jesus, and by faith in Jesus, just blots out, wipes it right away. By faith in His name, through faith in His name, the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, He said, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we can receive forgiveness, a blotting out of our sins. But the gospel doesn't end with one promise. It continues with a second and even a third promise. And the second promise that follows after the forgiveness of our sins is that we can experience spiritual refreshing. Peter says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that spiritual refreshing can come to us as it could come to them from the very presence of our Lord Himself. How many of us have ever, maybe, when, well, all of us at some point who are believers came to faith and experienced as a necessary precondition of coming to faith a real conviction of our sinfulness and our sins that, it, that our sinfulness gives rise to, right? How many of us have experienced conviction of sin? How many of us, even as believers, have willfully walked in sin and experienced the internal uh, discomfort, the disease, the conviction, the sorrow, the, the anguish, the burden of our sin. And it, it, there's, there's no human solution to that internal plight. There's no human solution to, to get rid of, of that weight, is there? If you ever walk through a season of sin as a believer, you know you can't just go into the shower, turn the water extra hot, you know, using, you know, extra... Uh, exfoliating sponge with really, really strong soap and scrub the, you know, the, the sense of sinful. You can't scrub it away, can you? You can't. But you can be forgiven. And from the one who accomplished what was necessary for your forgiveness to even be possible, you can receive times of refreshing. You can, you can not just be forgiven, but you can experience forgiveness. How many of us have experienced unburdening from the weight of sin in our lives as we've come before the Lord and recognize that He carried the weight for our sin that we could never carry because only He is the holy and righteous one and the author of life had the qualifications to carry it to begin with. And so we come to Him, we confess our sin, we give it to Him, and what does He give us in exchange? His righteousness, His holiness. The holy and righteous one became unholy and unrighteous when He, when he became our sin on our behalf so He could credit to us His holiness in His righteousness. So that is, as a function of that, we could experience spiritual refreshing, unburdening rest. But finally, Peter says there's a third gospel promise, and that is the promise that we as believers and those who were converted then as believers still look forward to a promise that has not yet been realized, and that is the promise of our Lord's return. Verse 20b, that He may send the Christ appointed for you. That the Father would send the Christ, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring, 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 restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Jesus was received into heaven. 
He presently sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father and has been delegated all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, right? We saw some baptisms this morning and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. All authority has been given to him. He's been received into heaven where he rules and reigns, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But guess what? That's not the end of the gospel narrative. The fact of the matter is that this is God's story from creation to new creation. We don't die and just go to heaven for eternity to play, you know, in eternal harp. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is coming back again, and that when He comes back, He will make all things new, that He will reconstitute creation, and that we will experience a creation which does not experience decay, and that we will experience bodies that do not break down. And what we really see in the miracle with this man is a restoration of his health in the restoration of his health is the reverse of the curse of the fall, which is death. That man experienced partially the curse of death in his lameness. And so in the name of Jesus, that curse of death is reversed temporarily in his life to demonstrate the power and the authority over death that's only carried in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing. Though this man was healed miraculously in the name of Jesus, he died at some point. Though Jesus raised Lazarus, Lazarus died at some point. At some point, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will experience death. It's a certainty, two certainties, death and taxes. It's tax season, right? But this is where this last gospel promise bears weight. This is where it is so overwhelmingly good. We look forward to a day when Jesus comes back and the dead will be raised, and we will be given new bodies, and creation will be reconstituted, and everything that goes so horribly wrong in this broken and sinful world will be set right fully and finally forever. Who is this Jesus? He's the risen servant. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse 22, Peter says, even Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. You listen to this prophet that God will raise up. Listen to his words. Listen to what he says. Listen to his name. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaimed these days, the days that were inaugurated when the Spirit came at Pentecost, the days of the church, the days which continue until this very day. Those days were proclaimed by the prophets in the Old Testament. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, we are constituent members of those families of the earth. 2,000 years later and on the other side of the world, coming from different cultural backgrounds and different walks of life, through the seed of Abraham, Jesus, the one who was promised, the one that all the Old Testament and the prophets pointed to, through him we can receive blessing. Remember that word, blessing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's also sent to bring us blessing but He is the one that we turn to by faith, and He is God's only solution to our wickedness. Not one of God's solutions to our wickedness, God's only solution to our wickedness. Look at how Peter concludes his sermon in verse 26. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you all first to bless you. All the families of the earth will experience blessing 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you to bless you. And how is the blessing characterized? What is this blessing? Is it that we would have lives or they would experience lives that, that, that are, are prosperous and perfectly healthy? No. The blessing is characterized as a turning from wickedness. That this one would come, this servant, he would suffer, but that he would be raised and that he is sent to bless by turning us from our sin. What is the gospel? At the heart of the gospel is the reality that we stand guilty before a holy God, but that God in His grace has made provision for our guilt to be cleared and our record to be removed and for us to be reconciled to Him through His Son, through Jesus, through that name, through faith in that name. That is the gospel, to be blessed by turning from our wickedness in the name of Jesus. Now, you might notice that I skipped over verse 23. I tried to be kind of sly about it. So, the gospel communicates at least three promises to those who receive it on the basis of the authority in the person of Jesus. But the gospel also has embedded inside of it a very serious warning. Verse 23, still quoting Moses, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet to that Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. The ones who reject, the ones who refuse to listen, the ones who refuse to heed and to receive the name of Jesus, they will be removed from God's people. What did Jesus Himself say? He said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus Himself declared that He was the only way to God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus expresses the negative side of this reality in this gospel warning. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus, the author of life, is the one who has that authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And so there is a warning built in the gospel not to refuse, not to, not to ignore, not to turn away from that name, not to refuse His voice and His words. Do we love Jesus? Do we cherish Jesus? Because what Peter is communicating in, in this sermon, in this passage in Acts chapter 3, is that that name is the most powerful, invaluable thing that we could ever possibly receive. Just as it was the most powerful, invaluable thing that that lame beggar could ever possibly receive. He had no idea before that day his need of the name of Jesus. And these people had no idea before that day they walked in the temple to pray to the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their need for Jesus. And maybe some of us had no idea before this day, before we walked into a church thinking that we would go about our spiritual business, our real need for that name, the name of Jesus. It's only in Jesus that we experience forgiveness and deliverance and refreshing, and it's only Jesus who will return to receive His bride and to reconstitute all things. How precious is that name of Jesus? How precious is that good news, church? In the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church had spread 
and had built up its storehouses of wealth and had lost the, the heart of the gospel just a couple short centuries before Martin Luther would spark the Protestant Reformation, the return to Scripture and the return to the gospel, Thomas Aquinas was speaking to a Catholic bishop about this chapter, about Acts chapter 3. And the bishop said to Aquinas, well, we can no longer say that we have neither silver or gold because the church had plenty of both. And Aquinas said to him, and we can no longer say, rise up and walk. Do we love Jesus? Do we treasure Jesus? Is He our first love? Sometimes He's not my first love, I have to confess. But I pray, and I hope that we would pray, that as we grow together as a church family, as we walk together, as we study the Scriptures, as we gather together in fellowship, in partnership in the gospel to worship and to pray for one another, as we get to know each other, as we encourage each other, as we seek Jesus together, I pray that He would be more and more our first love. Amen? I pray that we would have the kind of love for His name that would give rise to the confidence to say to somebody something crazy enough is, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Peter's communicated the gospel, and in that communication, he has called for those people to respond a response to the gospel is composed of two simple things, of repentance, of turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus and faith, belief in Him. Repentance is the turning away from our sin, and faith is, is, is both received from Him and directed towards Him. Repentance and faith. To be truly repentant, church, to be truly repentant is to be turned from our wickedness. It's to be changed. Repentance isn't something that we manufacture. It's something that is granted to us by God. It's something that, that when He opens our eyes to our sinfulness and, and He opens our eyes to, to Jesus, that we cry out to Him and, and we are changed and we are turned. That is our blessing as Christians. He's been sent to bless us by turning us from our wickedness. I've supplied in the notes a reference to a very simple book, one of my favorite, well, two books, but one of them is one of my favorite books. It's a simple book um, on repentance. I try to read it once a year to be reminded of the priority and the necessity and just the basics of repentance as foundational to the Christian life. And C. John Miller, the author, writes this about repentance. He says that repentance means that we must turn from trusting in empty cisterns like ourselves and thirst and drink from Christ alone. Peter called those people to turn from every other cistern into thirst and drink from Christ alone, to have faith in Him, to trust Him, to believe in Him. In Psalm 20, verse 7, David wrote that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The name of the Lord our God, the divine name is used there, Yahweh. But remember Peter's words to all the religious people in the temple, his name, by faith in his name, the faith that is through which name? The name of Jesus. It is only through the name of the Lord Jesus that we are saved from our sins and washed from our wickedness. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God which has been personified in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God from God, God in the flesh. And it's from this gospel reality that Peter will declare in the passage next week that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Church, that name is only and it is always Jesus. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, the author of life. We thank You that, Jesus, You took on human form, that You experienced our human frailty, that You lived a perfect life. And even as the author of life, taking on human frailty, You became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we confess that You have been raised and that You reign and that we trust in You. And it's from You that we even receive the faith which we confess and profess. And it's by faith in Your name that we are declared guiltless, that these gospel promises are applied to us. Jesus, we thank You for being the servant of God, the servant who suffered on our behalf. And we approach this communion table right now, this table of grace, and we pick up these elements to remember the work that You did, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, when You became that suffering servant on our behalf so that we would not have to suffer eternally for the sins which we committed ourselves. Jesus, we remember You in this moment. We pray in Your precious name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.